Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Now, more than ever, our communications are distributed and digitally connected. They are the lifeblood of the enterprise. With Smash, you can leverage all of your communications as a strategic asset. Smash enables companies to transform oversight into foresight by surfacing business critical signals in more than 100 digital communication channels, from email to WhatsApp to Zoom and many more. Regulated organizations of all sizes rely upon the Smash portfolio of cloud-native, AI-enabled digital communications capture, retention, and oversight solutions to help them identify regulatory and reputational risk within their communications data before those risks become fines or headlines. Smash serves a global client base spanning the top banks in North America, Europe, and Asia, along with other leading financial firms and various government agencies. To discover more about the future of communications capture, archiving, and oversight, visit www.smarsh.com. It's going to be quite contentious because it's putting a lot of faith in the regulator to get it right on issues that we're changing our mind on on a daily basis. But something needs to be done around it. Today's guest discusses why he believes London has lagged other financial centres in recent years. He outlines the issues within UK financial services he believes City Watchdogs should prioritise to strengthen London as a financial centre and as a listing exchange, amid what he sees as a post-Brexit crisis of confidence. He also details what measures policymakers can take to boost London's appeal and competitiveness in the lead-up to the upcoming general election. Craig Coburn is a former investment banker with more than 25 years of financial industry experience. He began his banking career at Deutsche Bank in 1997, before moving to Merrill Lynch, now Bank of America, in 2005, where he most recently served as the US Bank's Vice Chairman of Global Capital Markets in London and its co-head of Global Capital Markets for Asia Pacific in Hong Kong. He retired from investment banking in 2022. Hi, Craig. Welcome to Following the Rules. Thank you very much, Lucy. Good morning. Talk us through the first 18 months of retirement. What prompted it? What's life like after investment banking? Well, I was working in Hong Kong and I was there during the COVID era and it was very difficult to get in and get out of of Hong Kong. And my family was staying in London at the time. And so we decided that I would take career retirement and come back to the United Kingdom. I'm in my mid fifties. And so I think it was time to hang up my cleats, so to speak, and, and to move on. Since taking career retirement, I've met people I otherwise wouldn't have met. And I've actually had access that I otherwise wouldn't have had. You think that being at a big bank gives you a lot of access. In many ways, it does. But being independent, having no vested interest, being able to speak your mind freely also opens a lot of doors, precisely because you don't have an agenda. And I've been involved in a number of nonprofit and philanthropic uh, pursuits. I've been writing the occasional freelance column in Financial Times Alphaville, And I've been doing a little bit of consulting on the side, most particularly around uh, expert witness work. It's been really interesting to read your pieces in the FT. One thing that you've mentioned in that FT column is Brexit and and the UK's approach to that. What opportunities do you think the government is missing in its post-Brexit reform of UK financial regulation? 
Well, they're going to have to make the best of a bad situation. I've been fairly open in saying that I think Brexit has damaged the city enormously and has set back efforts to revive London as a financial center. That being said, it probably does create both the legal and political space to pursue different initiatives to try to revive investment in the city, to encourage listings and just encourage more activity. It's interesting to hear the Chancellor's Mansion House speech, and he was identifying some of the measures that they're contemplating to try to take back the initiative. But they're starting from a very difficult situation. It wasn't just the fact of Brexit. It was the fact that the United Kingdom left the European Union without an agreement on equivalence. The financial sector was not a priority for the Johnson government. And so as a result, it's a very difficult situation for the city as it tries to establish itself as a regional or global financial center. And you mentioned equivalence there, and that is a construct in EU law whereby non-EU-based financial services companies can gain access to the EU market if EU policymakers decree that the rules they're subject to are equivalent to the rules their EU counterparts are subject to. It would have not replaced the single market, of course, but gone some way to replacing that if it had been agreed. But there was reluctance on on both sides, really, to get that in place within the time frame that it would have been useful. Brexit handed the UK's top financial regulators, the FCA and the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority, a great deal more power and work. And it's not helped that that's coincided with the pandemic, the cost of living crisis, high inflation, I could go on. UK regulators and the FCA in particular have faced a lot of scrutiny in recent years as to their abilities to manage their growing workload in that context and effectively police the finance sector while so much else is going on. What was your main bugbear with the FCA and the PRA when you worked in investment banking and how would you like to see that addressed now? Great question. Look, it's never easy to be a regulator. You're the the killjoy and that's your job. And my interactions with people at the PRA or the FCA, they all seemed very intelligent, very qualified, very committed people. The biggest criticism I have about financial regulators is there's a tendency to look at what happened last time, regulate around that, load on a lot of cost for the regulated entities, and then not really assess whether those measures really reduce risk. And let me give some examples, and they're not UK-based because it's a global issue, and I, I think it speaks to more of a mindset or structural issue. But supposedly one of the learnings from the financial crisis was that banks need to have more capital, more equity capital, more core tier one capital. And yet you just had Credit Suisse effectively fail with the core equity tier one of 14.5%. And bear in mind, when you have to set aside a lot of capital, that has an economic cost, not just for that banking question, but for lending and for economic activity. And it does explain one of the reasons why, for example, there's been a surge of lending in the non-regulated space, away from the BDI of the regulators, which raises its own systemic issues. And so here, by piling on these capital requirements, have we made the system safer? Or paradoxically, have we made it maybe potentially less safe and less transparent? And these are the questions I think that regulators aren't in a particularly good situation to address. The other issue is that when you pile on costs for institutions, you hurt competition. And competition, to me, is one of the great motors for financial markets dynamism, for better service, for better delivery. You always need regulation, but it means more compliance people, means more infrastructure. The bigger firms can handle that. The smaller firms can't. 
So make no mistake, more regulation favors the bigger guys over the smaller guys. And that just needs to be taken into account. So it's never right or wrong. The devil's always in the detail. But I feel that those considerations tend to get overlooked because there's a need to avoid the last crisis. And my last observation is that there is sometimes a creeping sanctimony in a lot of financial regulation. So you look in the UK around the rules for compensation of code staff, and they bear almost no relationship to risk mitigation. An extra six-month hold on your stock and this percentage of compensation that's to be in stock. Other jurisdictions don't have this kind of stuff. And it's really difficult to see what effect they've had other than encouraging people to move out of banks and into private equity, where, of course, the taxes are much lower for various reasons. You need to have regulation, but it needs to be reviewed and reconsidered every so often to see whether it's effective, to see whether it may not have been a knee-jerk reaction to public anger, as the case may be, because otherwise you end up with a kind of outdated or obsolete set of, of rules that the regulator is required to enforce. One thing that the government had proposed to include in its package of post-Brexit reforms was something referenced as a call-in power, and it never became 100% clear what the government intended with that set of powers. It never actually came into reality, but broadly it was a suggestion that the government would have some power to call the financial regulators in and question their approach if they didn't agree with a particular approach they were taking. But there was a lot of controversy around that and ultimately the government rode back on, on that proposal. Are you suggesting that there needs to be something akin to that in place these days so that there is someone asking questions of the regulators and almost forcing them to look back at rules that they have implemented or their approaches to a certain issue? Look, it's a perennial problem in any administrative agency or any regulatory agency. How do you make that agency accountable democratically, right? And on the one hand, you don't want it to be subject to political influence because we all know politicians blow with the wind, they change their minds, and that can have its own problems. On the other hand, you don't want to have an agency, no matter how well-intentioned, no matter how good the people are, to be unaccountable to the public. So how do you define that independence? I don't know the exact mechanism that would need to be in place, but I do think there needs to be some way for the regulator to review its past actions to say, does this make sense still? Should we have a refresh around the rules that we have? It just seems to me that it's a little bit in fits and starts. I think now they're moving a little bit in the right direction. They're talking about growth and competitiveness as being part of the mandate of the FCA. And that is at odds, as I said before, with the idea of, of having regulation. But ha the devil in all these things is in the detail. And that's why I think it's great that the Chancellor's Mansion House speech was so focused on promoting the city in a way that previous governments didn't. But then when I look at the specific proposals, it's a bit of a mixed bag. And so I think the same goes for any attempts to deregulate or optimize regulation. In theory, it's great in practice, so you have to go on a case-by-case -case basis. But what I've tried to identify are a couple instances where I don't think the regulations have really mitigated risk. I think they've just increased a lot of costs. Okay. And you mentioned in relation to the capital issues that you referenced that you didn't believe that regulators were in a good situation to address those issues. Could you elaborate on why not? 
Well, look, regulators do two things. They either make the rules or they enforce the rules. And a lot of times the making of the rules is one process. The enforcement of the rules is another process. And probably much of their time is spent enforcing the rules, which they're required to do. And I think your original question gets to that, whether they have the bandwidth to do that. If you take a step back, what are the main strategic objectives of the regulator? Does the UK want to encourage capital formation of UK companies? Does it want to be an offshore financial center for the world? What, what exactly are we trying to do as the objective to avoid fraud and insider dealing? Are there broader considerations and inevitably a dilution of that mission? What are the priorities? Those have to be decided at the end of the day by the democratically elected governments. Or they have to be providing that direction for the regulator. But I don't think those questions are all that clear. With the government, okay, the UK has left the EU. It's not going to be a regional financial center, or at least not without great difficulty. So what is it going to be? Just going to be servicing UK companies, a country of uh, you know, 55, 60 million people, mid-sized country? Is it going to be a place for emerging markets? Is it going to be offshore? Then do you have to change tax policy? You have to do quite a lot of other things around that. What exactly are we doing when we say we want to get the city back to where it used to be? We want to promote the city. What exactly does that mean? That's a question for the government of the day. Mm -hmm. And we are approaching an election year in the UK. 2024 should see all parties in the country vie to become the next ruling party mm. in government. What opportunities or challenges do you perceive for the UK's political parties in relation to the financial services sector ahead of the general election? Wow. A couple of observations. First is the financial sector is a gen huge generator of tax revenue. And at a time when public services are, are fairly stretched, it, it is a priority, I think, for all the parties to find a way to make the city as productive as possible. And sometimes that's politically very difficult, especially after the financial crisis. I think the, the reputation of the financial sector plummeted and that opens itself up to what can be fairly punitive or fairly populist measures. By the way, it's, it's all parties. It's not just one party or the other. I think, secondly, the current government now is very active in promoting a wide variety of initiatives to promote the city. And if, as the polls suggest, Labour wins the next election, is Labour going to be in a position to maintain some semblance of continuity around those measures? Obviously, Labour will, will want to review what's being done. They may have their own views. But there is a value to continuity uh, in that respect. And a lot of people will be asking what Labour intends to do around that. And the third is, going back to what I'm saying before, is I think the parties now need to clarify how they see the city's future. And there's a lot of hot air, but if we're not going to be part of the European Union, what is the city going to be? And they need to, to decide what to do there. And the last question is going to be, what kind of cooperation are you going to have with the EU? To some degree, Rishi Sunak has buried the hatchet with the EU. They signed a memorandum of understanding around regulatory cooperation. But the FX and rates businesses really rely on or benefit from connectivity with the European Union. That connectivity is obviously imperiled, to put it mildly. And there's probably going to have to be some sort of reckoning, whether to rejoin the, the single market or do something, because otherwise we're going to see a continued leaking of people 
and assets from the city of London, no matter how many white papers are launched. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you don't think the government has made clear what its plans for the city's future are via its very many consultations on the city's regulatory future. Well, it's not really clear. They want to be Silicon Valley. They want to be a global financial center. They want everything. They want to have, so to speak, their cake and eat it too here as well in many other areas. But if they really want to do that, for example, then they need to take fiscal measures, tax measures, okay? And they haven't really done that. So you have all these EISs and SEISs. Those are basically schemes the government has where you can invest in small startup companies and there's a huge tax break. But those companies can later be sold to an American company or a French company. Why don't you make those conditional on staying in the UK and that you lose those tax benefits if you're not in the UK? Why not extend them to listed equity and provide some of these tax benefits for listed equity above and beyond the, the ISIS? There are a lot of measures that can be taken, but they need to think about them. They haven't really done it yet. Even the Edinburgh reforms, most of them are fairly sensible, but it's all very incremental. And I think it's because it lacks an overarching strategic vision. And one of the other concerns, Lucy, that I have is that Brexit has weakened the financial sector as it has many other sectors in the UK. And so as a result, those sectors ask for special treatment, for special dispensations. And so you have a real risk of a creeping crony capitalism in the UK because sectors which have been damaged, which have legitimate grievances over the impact of Brexit, will, will assert their vested interests. And that's actually quite a governance problem. So I can understand why, although the rhetoric has been pretty uh, highfalutin, why the government has actually been relatively cautious in moving forward, because you do have a real risk of capture by different vested interests, whether it's the farmers or the financiers or whoever. And so we just have to be very careful. You can probably tell I, I didn't favor Brexit. I do think that it creates a real risk of crony capitalism, of capture of the government by vested interests, if we're not careful. And believe me, the financial sector is as effective a, an advocate of its own interests as anybody else. How can that be avoided? <laughs> I don't know. Look, you want to err on the side of promoting competition and doing things that encourage competition as much as possible and trying to favor what I would describe as, I know it's kind of a dirty word, but supply side reforms uh, as much as possible. Smart deregulation, as they're trying to do, clearing out some of the regulatory underbrush. And you have to be careful because of the straightened situation the UK is in. But I think they need to do some of that to encourage people to invest in the UK. The same goes, by the way, for the Mansion House Compact. One of the measures Jeremy Hunt announced was that nine defined contribution pension providers would agree to allocate 5% of their assets into private equity or liquid assets by the year 2030. I was surprised in reading the speech that there's no specification of whether those assets would even be in the UK. Why isn't it UK assets? It talks about the UK, but theoretically they could be investing in private equity firm in the US. What does that do for anybody? That doesn't serve the ancillary benefit of promoting investment in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. I think the UK has two problems. It doesn't have enough capital for investment and it doesn't have enough investment opportunities. If you want more capital to come into the market, then you probably need to do something on the tax side to encourage the formation of capital. And then to make companies' life easier, to, to make it a more attractive place business-wise, 
And that's probably has to do with tax law, employment law and regulation. But they, they need to figure out how to do that. And you don't want the government picking and choosing winners. We don't want the government subsidizing people because that usually ends badly. But if you have more supply side reforms, you let the market make its own mistakes, so to speak. People who have something in the game, that's probably going to get you the best outcome. But I think it's a perennial risk corporatism can creep into the financial sector as it can in any other sector. And you mentioned the memorandum of understanding between the UK and EU regulators, and that essentially is a cooperation agreement between EU and UK regulators. Yeah. The hope was initially that that would create an environment in which an equivalence agreement could follow, but that's now too late. And actually, arguably, equivalence agreements now wouldn't be that valuable because companies have adapted to Brexit and, and they would have to unpick that adaptation at a cost now. Just leaving aside the subject of Brexit for a moment and jumping back to the FCA, in in recent years, bankers have faced increasing sanctions for their use of encrypted messaging apps like WhatsApp and Signal. The SEC, the US regulator, took action in September last year. They charged 16 Wall Street firms with widespread record keeping failures. Yep. And that is a reference to a MIFID II requirement for financial services firms subject to those rules to keep track of all electronic communications amongst their regulated staff. The FCA gave an indication it would follow the SEC's action, but it hasn't yet. What do you expect to happen there and, and how can UK bankers prepare? This is a great question. In fact, the crackdown on the messaging apps creates sort of its own set of contradictions because you have clients that could be messaging you. If, if you're talking to somebody, why is that treated differently than an electronic message? But it is what it is, and people have adapted to it. And they've adapted in one of two ways. They either comply or they don't comply, but they do it in a way that's virtually untraceable. I would hope most people that I know, they, they do comply. And so they put everything on email or they say, let's have a chat face to face. And everyone has known for 20 years to be very careful about what you put in email. And that's nothing new. Investment bankers have internalized the lesson that you are very careful what you put in emails, but it is a frustration. It means things are slower. And then when they move to other firms, let's say family offices or firms that aren't regulated, they suddenly have the freedom to use the messaging apps to which they're accustomed. But what's interesting about the SEC is it fined 16 banks or whatever. A bunch of bankers got letters, disciplinary letters, sometimes letters of education, letters of caution, some maybe even warnings. But I'm not aware that there was any substantive misconduct that was uncovered from this whole investigation. In other words, what they found is people were using the messaging apps for messages that were otherwise harmless. So it was really an elevation of form over substance or the kind of form of broken windows policing where we're going to crack down now really hard on a technical violation so that nothing worse can happen. I imagine the FCA will probably do a similar review. Maybe it has done a review. And if they can find out, they will. The difference is that in the U.S., people use iMessage, and so it's easy to recover. If people use WhatsApp or Signal and if, and if the messages get deleted, it may be harder to recover and therefore harder to uncover wrongdoing. But that's what the FCA is looking into. 
You've referenced the practice that many financial services companies have sought to adopt to comply with the MIFID II requirements, and that is a company-wide ban of encrypted messaging apps like WhatsApp and Signal. The problem with that is that typically a number of bankers' clients like to use WhatsApp and Signal to communicate, and then mm. the clients want to talk to their banker. So how effective are those company-wide bans in your view? I think they're pretty effective because no one's going to risk their career or their compensation or their promotion on this stuff. The financial services industry are much more conservative than is often represented on popular media. So I don't think people are using these encrypted apps and they'll respond back in email or they'll call or whatever. Uh, if they have to, they're not, they're no, there's no point in taking a chance. So I actually do think it's effective. The question is whether this has done anything for the sake of improving financial conduct. And I think probably not. So in terms of the FCA focusing its limited resources on an area of the city that might unmask a significant misconduct or, or really reform the way that bankers are, are behaving. This is, you would say, not an area to focus on. Do I think this is the best use of limited regulatory resources? No. This is the kind of thing that's almost like a trap for the unwary. Someone says, hey, you know, someone says a, a, a WhatsApp message. How is the book of demand looking on our deal? That's a violation. That's a breach. Is that really a great use of disciplinary bandwidth? Effectively, though, the FCA is probably outsourcing a lot of this to the banks. And so you get this whole compliance apparatus that's there to crack down on it. But this is not a priority. Now, if you're saying, well, we need to crack down these apps because otherwise people will be doing bad things and we won't know about that. Let me tell you something. If people are doing bad things, they could be using encrypted apps and you won't know about it. So I don't think this is uncovering any wrongdoing. What it's doing most of the time is catching people out. And I think that gives regulation a bad name when you're catching people out for, yes, they're breaches and they shouldn't do it. But is this really what it's about? No, what regulation is about is preventing fraud, preventing insider trading preventing the kind of misconduct that creates real victims. This, to me, shouldn't be a regulatory priority. Okay. There have been a handful of financial services companies that have sought to launch their own proprietary messaging apps. These are tools that look and function like WhatsApp yeah. or an equivalent and tap into a client's WhatsApp and is compliant and therefore can be used by regulated staff. Do you have a view on whether they work? I'm not aware that there's been widespread adoption of those methods. I can tell you if clients want to send you a WhatsApp message, they're not going to be excited that it's now being collected for compliance purposes. It gives people a creepy feeling. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't I suspect that they will probably not be widely adopted. People will just use email or they'll call. Mm -hmm. I know your podcast is followed by a lot of regulators. I would just say one of the frustrations I think a lot of people in financial services have around regulation is that there tends to be a lot of times what I call traps for the unwary, where people can trip themselves up, get in a whole lot of trouble for breaching rules. They shouldn't breach those rules, but those rules aren't very well tailored for preventing misconduct, the kind of misconduct that you and I care about. And I would just say, as they go through their rule book, as they reflect on things, it's probably better to focus on what are the key priorities and not creating a situation in which good people can find themselves in trouble because they were careless here and there on, on matters that didn't really matter so much. And WhatsApp is a classic example. Yeah, if someone's doing insider trading, they're using these apps, sure. 
but the, the misconduct is the insider trading. But most of the time, it's just people just, what time is the meeting? Have you prepared the book? 99.999% of communication in any financial entity is going to be fairly banal. Okay. So look elsewhere, regulators. I just think there are higher priorities. Mm. And in terms of higher priorities, there has been much focus on financial services firms, ESG, environmental, social and governance practices in recent years, yeah. in large part to regulatory pressure for companies to be more mindful of their ESG credentials. FCA rules are set to be finalized later this year. EU rules became mandatory earlier this year. Listeners to this podcast will, of course, be aware of the compliance requirements arising from those two sets of rules. But I'm interested to know what challenges you think regulators or firms might be missing in terms of their approach to ESG. I think ESG is actually a huge issue for the regulator because you have these ESG ratings and they're all over the place. So people are picking and choosing which rating firm they want to use to get the best rating they can. And there's a massive amount of dispersion, no correlation. So when you look at credit rating agencies, okay, Moody's and S&P, they have their own methodologies, but there's a high degree of correlation where they come out. Okay, then If they have any difference, it's usually one notch max. Whereas you use Sustainalytics or Affinitive, and they just have different criteria you can't compare and contrast. And so you end up with situations in which tobacco companies have high ESG ratings and Tesla has a low ESG rating. And, and the, it's a real mess. And so you, you have people who are issuing bonds and calling them sustainability bonds or green bonds. And what are the criteria around that? It's a bit of a free-for-all. So I guess there's two ways of, of looking at it. Either you just say ESG ratings are like, broker research. They're just one opinion of many and you just throw it out there. Or you say, no, they need to be given some sort of regulatory framework, some sort of pseudo legitimacy, a bit like the credit rating agencies. Given the amount of assets that are now being dedicated to ESG, it's a requirement for an investment. I do think you now really have to think about ways in which to regulate it. And it's not going to be easy because right now it is the wild west. Can you talk me through how you see that regulatory framework being developed? Who would own that? Well, probably have to be in the UK would be the FCA. They have issued a consultation paper about it, but it's very difficult because E and the S and the G are all different. How prescriptive do you do it? What are the basis? Even the data collection is fairly heterogeneous, much less the judgments that are brought to bear. So it's actually quite complicated, but there are rules against false advertising, right? And you should be advertising something as sustainable or as green if it isn't. And these labels are now being thrown around left, right, and center, and there's really no regulation around it. And so that is problematic. So I would probably look at it in that context that, that you cannot represent something as being sustainable or as being green or whatever you want to call it without having substantiation of it and paying off an ESG ratings firm is not good enough because mm -hmm. of the inherent conflict of interest around that. So probably what needs to happen is the FCA needs to crack down on the conflicts of interest within these ESG ratings firms. I mean, these rating firms get paid for the ratings. A lot of these firms also sit within firms that provide other consulting services as well. So a company hires a firm as a consultant, and then he says, can I have a rating as well? You can see that there, there are obvious conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. And untangling them is going to be fairly complicated. And then from there, probably establish a few methodologies, but it's going to be quite contentious because it's putting a lot of faith in the regulator to get it right on issues that we're, we're changing our mind on on a daily basis. But something needs to be done around it. And we're talking about adding a huge and complex 
task to an already overloaded and under-resourced FCA, given that it's not an organization that can move that quickly on these things. And also given, as you've referenced, the focus on greenwashing, this practice Mm. of marketing something as green that isn't perhaps as green as it's been marketed, there is a lot of fear amongst the financial services sector that a company or product will be deemed to be a a greenwashing instant. As the FCA moves to try and do more in this space, is the fear of greenwashing and the public scrutiny that comes along with these allegations enough to encourage good behavior in this space? Look, what will scare people, if you will, or, or police people, two, one of two possibilities, regulatory enforcement or litigation. In the US, they often rely on litigation, as you know. The UK doesn't really have that kind of tradition or setup, but that's what will keep people honest about what they call green and what they call sustainable. But Right now, there are no rules, so you can't bring an enforcement action when you don't know what is or isn't permissible. Uh, That's why I think this issue is quite complex. And maybe ESG is the wrong framework because E is not the same as S, which is not the same as G. Maybe it'd be better if it could be limited, for example, I'm I'm just saying this off the top of my head, climate change or something like that. You focus on that and everything else. You can talk about whether you have a great governance structure or whether you have fantastic social impact, but you can't call yourself a social impact fund or bond or ETF. Maybe that is the the appropriate way. But I do think that you go back to principles around truth and advertising. Is, that's probably the, the right starting point. And you take it from there. And I appreciate that FCA is, is short-staffed and the rest of it. But I, I also think this is an area where the UK can really become a leader. You're talking about post-Brexit opportunities. If the FCA or the UK can find a way to show leadership here, it could really be the center for this kind of activity, but it needs to be rationalized. It needs to have a common framework with some flexibility. Otherwise, my concern is that this ESG investing is on a fast path to disrepute because there's just too much arbitrariness in the way in which ratings are assigned, the way in which products are labeled. What are the risks of FCA in action here? The risks are a mis-selling scandal, people calling something green when it's, it's the opposite thereof. And that suddenly people say, all oh, this stuff around sustainability, it's a bunch of baloney. And by the way, there are no shortage of political actors who would want to discredit the whole idea around ESG and, and climate mitigation. And it would be a shame to give those political actors ammunition because of mis-selling or misrepresenting certain investments. I think it's a real danger. It's a global issue, but it's one in which the UK probably could show some leadership now that it has the freedom to maneuver. If we're trying to find any Brexit dividends, I guess this would be one. If they come up with something which is sensible, they could show real leadership here. Okay, that's interesting. Lastly, and generally, what's one upcoming or current challenge that you believe not enough people are paying attention to? Well, we've discussed a lot of the main ones here. Look, I think managing a world in which we don't have a lot of economic growth is going to be a real challenge. You're talking about demographic decline in many cases, lack of economic growth, and what do you do about that? It's a serious question. And that's why the financial sector still has a huge role to play in making sure that the investments that need to be made, whether it's in electric vehicles, artificial intelligence, biosciences, it's important that the financial sector works and channels investment appropriately. I do think in the wake of the financial crisis, 
too much was oriented around supporting the government bond market. And you've seen that with the UK pension system and how that almost came a cropper last September. But it's time again to encourage investment in the private sector, in growth industries, to confront the challenges that we're going to be facing. Because if we don't, then I think the managed decline can very quickly become quite an uncontrollable deterioration in living standards and quality of life. So it's never been more important for policymakers to enable the UK financial services sector to be as competitive as possible. It's critical. And I, I do think that it's good the government sees it as a matter of urgency, but there's still an awful lot of work to be done. Okay. Well, there's a lot that we've covered here. There's a lot more we could cover. We'll get you back on months from now to see to what extent the reforms and approaches you suggested have been taken on board. But in the meantime, thank you very much for your time, Craig. Thank you, Lucy. Appreciate the conversation. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.